21, glad to have you uh, in the house of God for all of our fathers and men of the house on your way out. We've got just a little gift for you, a little cool keychain with our Pursuit logo on it. And just uh, want to give you a little token uh, of appreciation today in a culture uh, that continually diminishes the role of men and fathers. It's important that we communicate the message of the gospel, which is that God honors dads, God honors men, God honors women and mothers as well. And they play a unique role in the contribution to the spiritual ecosystem that we have here in this place. Let me show you a picture this morning that I think really best encapsulates the importance of men, the importance of fathers uh, in uh, the house of God. This is from some missiological statistics. I want you to see this this morning. There's a 3.5% chance a family gets saved if the child is saved first. There's a 17% chance a family gets saved if the wife is saved first. There's a 93% chance a family gets saved if the husband is saved first. Now we know the Lord works in mysterious ways. He's working all things together for the good of those who, who love him. He reaches people in all sorts of circumstances and scenarios. But what I find intriguing about this is the story that is told in the book of Acts where Paul and, 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 and Silas minister to the Philippian jailer. And the Bible says in that setting, there's a three-generation salvation. The in-laws of the Philippian jailer are saved. The Philippian jailer is saved and his children are baptized. And that's what we're going after here in this environment is household salvation. Do you know how much a generation is marked by a family member who makes a faithful commitment to follow Jesus? That changes everything. And so what we're doing here counts for eternity. It's not just about me and my house or me and my life or me in the limited years that God gives me on this planet. It's about making a difference for the generations and we honor and value the work of God in people's lives in uh, that regard. Hey, just, just a quick note. <coughs> Tomorrow, uh, Monday, uh, 6 p.m. We're going to be uh, hosting our final pursuit night for the year here uh, in, in this building. Uh, we gather around tables. It's kind of our community group night. We're catering in Chick-fil-A uh, tomorrow night. We got child care and, and it's really a great night for people to connect in a little bit of a smaller setting. And so if you're interested in joining us, we'd sure love to have you tomorrow night, 6 p.m. Also on this night, we're going to be doing our ministry fair, which just gives people an opportunity to interact with all of our different serve team leads and captains and find out ways that they can get more involved in help and serve and build the church. So if you're interested, we'd sure love to see you tomorrow night, really for our final pursuit night of uh, the year. This morning, uh, our primary text is going to come from uh, the book of Acts, starting in, in, in chapter two. The Acts is written by a Gentile physician named Luke. Of course, Luke also writes the gospel of Luke. In the book of Acts, the first one third of the book of Acts really focuses on the life of the apostle Peter. The second two-thirds of the book of Acts really focus on the life of the Apostle Paul. But Luke is recording the birthday, the founding, the development, the instruction, the ideology, the foundation, the framework of the New Testament church. And so we're going to read a few verses out of Acts 2 that I think help frame in the way that we ought to understand how church should look 
today. You know, a lot of times people say things like this. I just wish the church really looked like the New Testament church in scripture. And, 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 and although I know what people are trying to communicate when they use that statement, when you read about the New Testament church, it is filled with problems and chaos and sin and dysfunction. And in the midst of it, God works. That's the true miracle is that in the midst of all of our imperfections and brokenness, we still serve a Jesus who shows up in power all the time when his people ask. And in Acts 2, starting in verse 42, the Bible says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled, watch, with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Though all the believers were together, they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Friend, let me start here this morning. If we want New Testament power, we have to return to New Testament practice. In fact, we are in the midst, I believe, of an outpouring in the Northwest, but it is what we do with what we've got that makes all the difference. You know, many people experience revival, but not very many people live to tell about it. Meaning this, they either get burnt out, they blow up, they give up, or they go back to their old ways. But if we can build our lives around the pursuit of the presence of Jesus, we can pastor an awakening in the region that results in transformation in the nation. And that's why it's so important that the bigger we grow, the harder we fight for simplicity in our community. I'm going to share with you a verse that I think helps frame in the context of, 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 of this principle uh, uh, this morning. Uh, the Bible says this in 2 Corinthians 11 and, and verse 3, as the apostle Paul is writing the church in Corinth. He says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted away from the simplicity of of Christ. I've heard it said before, and I think it bears some truth that we pay theologians a lot of money to take simple concepts and make them so confusing that the common person can't understand them. And the goal of Christian life is to focus on the simple, most basic truths of who Jesus is and what he has to say about our lives and our surroundings, and then commit ourselves to the followership of that type of Jesus. And as the organization continues to grow, we fight to retain simplicity of mission, vision, and purpose in this house. How many of you have a junk drawer in your house? Every miscellaneous item that you don't know where to put ends up in that junk drawer. And then once a year, you clean it out and you recognize how much junk you've actually accumulated. In fact, you never know how much junk you have until you decide to move. And then you think to yourself, why and how and in what manner was I able to collect all of these unnecessary objects? But organizations, especially as they grow, can become like junk drawers. 
Every person who has a good idea, now they certainly don't want to help build it, but they have an idea on what you should do to build it, wants to contribute to the junk drawer. Every harebrained idea or mission or ideology or tangent or wild rabbit trail that somebody runs off on, they want to commit it or contribute it to the junk drawer of the church. And what happens sometimes is churches continue to grow and continue and communities continue to develop is that junk drawer becomes so filled with unnecessary things that the church moves from the simplicity of the gospel. It's interesting when Jesus is communicating to his disciples, he says, upon this rock or this revelation, I will build my church. He doesn't say I'll build my parachurch ministry. He doesn't say I'll build my outreach program. He doesn't say I'll build some sort of ancillary, tangentially connected function to the church. He says, I will build my church. And it doesn't mean that we don't invest in things that are connected to the church, but if the church isn't healthy, then what comes from it, no matter how impressive it looks to the outside, won't be healthy either. And so when we think about mission, we don't wanna export something that's not first working in here. And so for us, we fight for the simplicity or the beauty of the gospel. And there's a lot of things in scripture that I can't explain, but that I can experience. And the simplicity of the gospel is that in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. And we crucified him for it, but God raised him from the dead on the third day. And some days later, he ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the father and soon he he will return. And there are a lot of other tangentially connected items to that mission, to that message, or to that statement. But if we move away from simplicity, we'll get really busy doing things that sound good, but miss God. I tell you, busyness is one of the great tools that the enemy uses in this season to get you distracted from simple truths and simple followership. And so for us, we fight to maintain simplicity and purity as it pertains to our pursuit of Jesus. Let me reinterpret 2 Corinthians 11 for our world today. I fear somehow that you would try to add good works to the gospel and therefore be corrupted away from the simplicity that is in Christ. I fear somehow that you would try to add political outcomes to the gospel and therefore be corrupted away from simplicity that is in Christ. I fear somehow that you would try to add cultural relevance to the gospel and therefore be corrupted away from the simplicity that is in Christ. I fear somehow that you would try to add nice leaders with zero boldness and no conviction and poor theology and therefore be corrupted away from the simplicity that is in Christ. Friend, Jesus is enough. The gospel still works. The Bible is still authoritative. The Holy Spirit is still active and the church is alive. And that's the simplicity of the gospel is that we focus on first things first. And in doing so, we allow God to add the fullness of his kingdom prerogative. I want you to notice the fourfold mandate that comes from verse 42 of Acts chapter two. Of course, Acts chapter two records the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. As the disciples are gathered in their upper room, the Holy Spirit falls on them. They're filled with boldness. They're filled with witness. They're filled with the ability to speak in new tongues. 3,000 are saved and the New Testament church is planted. And it is chaotic and it is unorganized and it is filled with all sorts of imperfections. But it is the vessel that God chooses for the transformation of the world. Friend, if you're looking for a perfect church, please don't join yourself to it because as soon as you do, it'll go from perfect to imperfect. 
Now, let me give you the fourfold mandate from Acts 2, starting in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. That word devote in the Greek means this, to persist, to persevere, to continue steadfastly pursuing a showing of strength in the midst of difficulty. In fact, the first verb attributed to the local church in the entirety of the New Testament comes from verse 42. They devoted themselves. Friend, in our hour, we need a fresh devotion to the teaching of God's words. I want you to understand what is being said by Luke in Acts 2. He didn't say they devoted themselves to the apostles sharing or the apostles perspectives or the apostles suggestions. No, but the apostolic teaching of the New Testament. I like what Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher of the late 19th century once said, a time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. <laughs> and that time is now. Watch how Paul warns Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Friend, you and I have a received faith. Meaning this, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for that which I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Jesus did not say, say, I am now ascending into heaven. But in about 2,000 years, humans will invent this thing called the internet. And they will finally be able to understand what I was actually trying to say, but this time through their newly formed filters of Marxism and intersectionality. People operate as if they have finally just now discovered what Jesus really meant on ethics, values, or kingdom. No, friend, this message has been preached for 2,000 years, and if the Lord should tarry, it will be preached for another 2,000 years without compromise. And friend, in 2,000 years, nobody will be writing songs about you, but they'll still be writing songs about him. The object of desire in the church is Jesus. It is his beauty, it is his brilliance, and it is his presence. And if we will make a commitment to pursue those things, there is no telling what God will do in the Northwest. Jesus says, teach them everything I have suggested you to do. No, teach them everything I have commanded you to do. And right after the New Testament church gets planted, they devote themselves. They take a stubborn position of refusing to be moved away by distractions, and they commit themselves to the apostolic teaching of the New Testament. And, and I would venture to say, if it was good enough for them, it, it, it ought to be good enough for us. It ought to be enough to devote ourselves to the teaching of God's word. It ought to be enough to devote ourselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. I think sometimes we're searching for these overly complicated formulas on how to grow a church. Friend, if you grow a church without the presence of God, all you've done is a disservice to God's people. I'm not impressed with large organizations. I'm impressed with organizations that build big people who are centered around a pursuit of the presence of God. It don't matter how big pursuit 
pursuit gets, we've got to keep a central focus on Jesus and his beauty and brilliance. And if we will stay unimpressed with us and really impressed with him, he will make our path straight. They devoted themselves to teaching. Watch, number two. And now they devoted themselves to teaching and to fellowship. Fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. It means the sharing of spiritual life, partnership, commonality, friendship, and community. It was just as important as teaching. It wasn't a lesser activity, but instead a necessary ingredient in the move of God. It's easy to talk about community. It's harder to be committed to one. Friend, let me challenge you this morning. You are not a bee pollinating the churches of the Northwest. You are either a builder of the house of God or a leech off of the house of God. For community without process and commitment is cancerous. We rally around our shared vision and mission for the task at hand. And you might think that this is a no-brainer, but we must, must, must resist the spiritual consumerism of the West. I'll just go to church wherever. I'll just do church whenever. I'll just show up when it's convenient. We treat church like our favorite fast food restaurant. I'll show up on my time, on, at my convenience, and if it's not hot and ready, by the time I pull up to the window, I'll just pollinate somewhere else. Here's what I'm challenging you to do. Commit yourself to an imperfect church. Commit yourself to following imperfect leaders. Commit yourself to an imperfect organization. And in doing so, see your life blossom and be transformed as a result of your stubborn devotion. Everything works better in theory than it does in practice. You know what works better in theory than practice? Marriage. You know what works better in theory than in practice? A new business idea. Well, when I drew it out on a napkin, I, I figured I'd be a millionaire overnight. Well, when we were in that dating stage, I just thought it was gonna be a honeymoon every day of my life. There are things that work better in theory than they do in practice, but theory is untested until it's done. And all of a sudden when it's done, you've gotta embrace all of the imperfections that you didn't calculate when you were just daydreaming. But we cannot allow our spiritual passion or desire to be satisfied by the daydreams that we share around the kitchen table, but instead enamored by the practice of this imperfect organization as we are committing ourselves to a perfect Jesus. Well, I just want to go to a church where I'll never be hurt. You'll never find that. I just want to follow a leader who will never disappoint me. Friend, you will never find that. Part of your great developmental process is submitting yourself to imperfect things and allowing them to develop you into the perfect image of Jesus Christ. I don't know why God desires to partner with people. If I were him, I wouldn't. I'd just snap my fingers and make it happen, but he desires to partner with the free will agency and volition of broken people just like me and just like you for the transformation of the world around us. And I just find it so interesting out of all of the things that Luke could have included as necessary ingredients to the building of God's church, he included something as low level as fellowship. Now, fellowship is not just kind of the fake smile I give somebody on the way into church. It's not just that quick response to how you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Awesome. I'll see you next week. 
No, it's intentionally living a transparent and vulnerable life with the people that God has placed you in community with because you are operating with the understanding that God has placed resources that look like people around me who will help develop the previously undeveloped parts of my life. See, you need me as much as I need you. And you need the person sitting next to you as much as they need you. And together, what is formed here is a group of people who are each bringing their gifts, their times, their talent, their treasure, and committing it to the central vision of this house. And in doing so, seeing their life blossom and be transformed. See, you can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. You weren't meant to do it alone. In fact, the only thing in all of created order that God says is not good is for man to be alone. Watch what scripture says, Romans 12, honor one another. 1 Peter 3, live in harmony with one another. Romans 15, accept one another. Colossians 5, Galatians 5, excuse me, serve one another. Ephesians 4, be kind and compassionate to one another. Colossians 3, admonish one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, encourage one another. Hebrews 10, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. 1 Peter 4, offer hospitality. 1 John 3, love one another. It's almost as if these are missing ingredients from the fast-paced, cancel culture world in which we live. When you make a commitment to love somebody beyond their last mistake, that's when spiritual fellowship begins to happen. Let me show you a picture this morning. Let me show you what we're building here. As, as, as I think about the things that I'm giving myself to, giving my life to, giving my passion to, I, I want to kind of pull back the curtain and, and encourage you to go to war for these things in our community. Number one, we're going to build a church. I believe that every ministry is dependent on being connected to a healthy, spirit-filled church. And as the church rises, all boats connected to that float. We ought to have a healthy church that we're not embarrassed to invite our friends to. We ought to have a healthy church that we don't have to beg our kids to come to. We ought to build a church that we actually are excited to attend and hate when we miss, and that's what we're building in this community. So number one, it's a church. Everything revolves around that. But secondly, an area that I feel like God has asked us to take is the education mountain. We already have a preschool and a child care center, but if there has ever been a need for Christian education amongst our young people, it's now. We can't afford to tell nice little Bible stories on Sunday and then have our young people developed by Babylon Monday through Friday. Come on, especially the world that we're stepping into. I want to give every Christian parent the opportunity to have their kids educated in a faith-filled environment. We already have a preschool child care center. We're trying to hire more staff. It's blowing up. People are coming. But eventually, the Lord is going to give me a campus with property. We're going to start an elementary school. We're going to start a middle school. And we're going to start a high school. not just that. I believe that God's going to give us a counseling center. We have a mental health crisis in the West. 
and we've got politicians who are only passing laws that exasperate the problem. And we need spirit-filled counselors who operate as agents of healing. You know, people get healed a lot of ways. We can lay hands on the sick and see them recover, but they can also sit down with a clinical psychologist or a spiritual counselor and talk through past traumas and see healing come to areas of their heart that they never experienced. It's not either or, it's both and. We need spirit-filled mental health professionals to help talk people through, counsel people through the dark night of the soul. And I believe that God is gonna give us counselors, physicians, doctors, mental health professionals, therapists, and we can have a spirit-filled counseling center as a part of what we do here in this church. It's not just that, it's missions, local and foreign. Can I challenge you this morning, friend? You are just as much on mission here as you are when you take that two-week mission trip in the summer. It's not we do missions over there and then we do church here. No, we are just as much on mission in the Northwest as you are in any other country on earth. One of the things that we do every month is we sow into pastors, specifically in West Africa and, 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 and in specificity in the nation of Liberia. The nation of Liberia was ranked as the poorest nation on earth by the World Bank last year. I've been to Liberia, almost died in Liberia, preached there several times, and God is doing a good work amongst those people, but I felt a conviction to help sow into the national leaders who are leading churches and schools and orphanages in that country. Why? Because scripture says, when you do it unto the least of these, you do it unto me. And so we're gonna support what's happening internationally. We're gonna also help sponsor what's happening in our community. Why? It's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And it's not just that, but it's a network. And by network, I mean a team of churches and pastors and leaders. Whoa. So you weren't ready for that. See, I take off my glasses when I preach and, and people don't know when, when I take off my glass, I can't see anything. And so uh, I'm walking by faith here, but <clears throat> there's a growing hunger amongst pastors in our region to be connected to something that has more spiritual implications than just paying the light bill and hoping people show up. God is raising up ministers, men and women who are desperately hungry for the presence of God. <clears throat> what God is building is not just new wine, it's a new wineskin. And so over the next 10, 20 years of my life, these are the five things that I'm gonna give myself to. A church, a network of ministers and leaders, schools, a counseling and, and, and health center and mission, both local and, and, and international. And I think if we'll make a commitment, a stubborn devotion to do those things and, and be a part of an organization that pursues those things, then we will in an emblematic way be representative of the Acts 2 mandate that the early church followed. It wasn't just teaching or fellowship, it was the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread, this was a reference to both communion in a church context and the sharing of a meal together in a house context. Friend, if there isn't food involved, it should be an email. And just about nothing should be an email. 
There is something sacred about sharing a meal. It represents vulnerability, transparency, generosity. It was the key to relational harmony. The function was so important, it's actually listed as a spiritual gift. Did you know that? In both Corinthians and in Romans, Paul mentions hospitality as a spiritual gift. The idea that when you open your house and invite people in, you're not just sharing a meal, you're sharing in life. And in doing so, you're building strong friendships, a council of wise people around you that will help contribute to your upward mobility and spiritual transformation. See, here's the problem. Most of society's been locked up in their houses for the last 16 months. And you weren't created for isolation, but instead for relationship. And what I've found is people get more mean the longer they've been locked up. (laughs) And by the way, could I just submit to you this morning that when you lock up sick people, that's called quarantine. But when you lock up healthy people, that's called tyranny. Number four, they devoted themselves to teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and watch, prayer. Here's my request. Make a commitment towards spiritual dialogue because you won't survive this season without a savior to talk to. You know what I've found? If I'll just process stuff with Jesus first, most of the time I'm good after that. You know what makes a bad situation worse? Rehearsing it with the wrong people. If I just talk to Jesus first, it saves a lot of the unnecessary gossip, drama, and trauma of having to talk to everybody else. Save yourself time and just talk to Jesus. And when you do, it does something in your heart. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Friend, it wasn't socialism. It wasn't communism. It was spirit-filled generosity motivated by a revival environment. Let me show you a picture of economic models this morning. Communism, you have two cows. The state takes both and decides to give you some milk. Fascism, you have two cows, the state takes both and sells you some milk. Bureaucracy, you got two cows, the state takes both, shoots one, milks the other, and then throws the milk away. That's where we're at. (laughs) Traditional capitalism, you got two cows, you sell one, buy a bull, your herd multiplies, the economy grows, you sell them and retire on the income. Let me show you my favorite. Let me show you my favorite, Facebookism. You tell everybody you have a million cows. Everybody thinks you're amazing. You promise your friends free milk if they like your status. It turns out you don't have any cows. In fact, you never had any cows and your online profile is just a fake representation of the life that you wish you lived. That's funny. Human economic systems will never be able to compete with a spirit of generosity that comes over God's people as the result of experiencing an outpouring of his presence. And friend, if you help build God's house, God will build yours and anything that God builds remains. I think if we commit ourselves to the four things in Acts 2 verses 42, the apostolic teaching of the New Testament. Fellowship, true, transparent, authentic 
fellowship. Number three, the breaking of bread, inviting people into our homes. Number four, prayer. There is no telling what God will build. And if we'll refuse to lose our awe and wonder, we will see miracles worked by the hand of God in this environment that have never been seen before. Friend, I'm not asking you to visit. I'm not asking you to observe. I'm asking you to engage and to give your life to the building of God's kingdom. There is no greater reward than reaching the other side of eternity and hearing the Father say, well done, good and faithful servant. Maybe the most terrifying thing in life is to become successful at things that don't matter. Friend, let's give ourselves to something that matters for eternity. Let's build a healthy church. Let's take over the education mountain. Let's make a in the mental health crisis. Let's transform Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the uttermost parts of the earth. Let's develop a network of like-minded ministers who will pursue the presence of Jesus Christ. And let's see revival and awakening in the Northwest to such a degree that it changes the spiritual landscape for a generation to come. Fred, we are coming into a season where spirit-filled generosity is going to overtake God's people. <laughs> Don't leave here today and think, ah, oh, the church only wants my money. No, God demands every part of who you are. It's not just your treasure. It's your time and your talent and your life because in Him we live and move and have our being. Nothing is off limits to this type of God that we serve. And I'm encouraging you in this season, friend, go all in. Come on, don't just visit. Come on, don't just pollinate every once in a while. Don't just tip God anytime you've got something extra, but say, Pastor, I'm going all in. This is a vision I can give my life for. This is a vision I can raise my family in. This is a house that I can see the generations being transformed in, and it's worthwhile to go all in on Jesus. God is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You and I are those type of people in this type of hour. Come on, friend, would you stand as we close?